If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and to be able to share with all of you uh, some aspects of uh, my understanding of my grandfather's philosophy. I was uh, brought up in South Africa. That's where my parents lived and continued with grandfather's work uh, for many years. And so my two sisters and I were brought born there and we were brought up there. But at the age of 12, I was taken to India and uh, given the opportunity to live with grandfather and uh, hopefully learn some things from him. And some of the lessons that he taught me at the time really made a tremendous impact on me. I wish I could tell you all the lessons today, but uh, you know that would require several hours to do. But uh, I'll share with you one particular lesson that uh, made a big impact on me in the sense that it gave me an insight into the uh, depth and the breadth of his philosophy of nonviolence. And this happened one day when I was coming back from school and I had a little uh, notebook and a little pencil in my hands and I just happened to look at the pencil, it was about three inches long and I thought to myself, I deserve a better pencil, this is too small for me to use. And so without a second thought, I just threw that pencil away because I was so sure that grandfather would give me a new pencil when I asked him for one. But that evening when I met grandfather and asked him for a new pencil, instead of giving me one, he subjected me to a lot of questions. He wanted to know how the pencil became small and where did I throw it away and why did I throw it away and on and on and on. And I couldn't understand why he was making such a fuss over a little pencil until he told me to go out and look for it. And I said, you must be joking. 
said, you don't expect me to look for a little pencil in the dark? He said, oh yes, I do. He has a flashlight. And he gave me a flashlight and sent me out to look for this pencil and I must have spent about two hours searching for it. And when I finally found it and brought it to him, he said, now I want you to sit here and learn two very important lessons. The first lesson is that even in the making of a simple thing like a pencil, we use a lot of the world's natural resources and when we throw them away, we are throwing away the world's natural resources and that is violence against nature. And the second lesson is that because in an affluent society we can afford to buy all these things in bulk, we overconsume the resources of the world and because we overconsume them, we are depriving people elsewhere of these resources and they have to live in poverty and that is violence against humanity. And that was the first time I realized that all of these little things that we do every day, consciously and unconsciously, things that we throw away and overconsume and waste and, you know, all the time uh, it's become so much a second nature with us that we are doing this unconsciously. That every time we indulge in any of those acts, we are indulging in some form of violence. And then to make this lesson properly understood, he made me draw a genealogical tree of violence on the same principles as a family tree with violence as the grandparent and physical violence and passive violence as the two branches. And every day before I went to bed, I had to analyze and examine everything that experienced during the day. Things that I done to people or people may have done to me or whatever it was, all of that had to be analyzed and examined and put in their appropriate places on that. If it was the kind of violence where physical force is used, then it would go under physical violence. You know, things like kicking and slapping and punching and beating up people and murders and rapes and wars and killings and all of these things that we do uh, in our lives, all that would be physical violence. But if it was the kind of violence where we don't use any physical force and yet we hurt people, directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously, that would be passive violence and that would be things like discrimination, oppression, suppression, economic, political, social, cultural, religious, all of these things that we do to one another, consciously and unconsciously, that is passive violence. The way I had to determine whether this was passive violence or not was to ask myself the simple question, if somebody were to do this to me, would I be hurt by it or would I be helped by it? And if I came to the conclusion that I would be hurt by it, then that would be passive violence. And when I began to do this introspection, it was a form of introspection, finding out my own weaknesses. I was amazed that within a few months I was able to fill up the whole wall in my room with acts of passive violence. 
And that is when I became aware of how much passive violence I was committing. And then grandfather explained to me the connection between the two. He said, we commit passive violence all the time, every day, consciously and unconsciously, and that generates anger in the victim, and the victim then resorts to physical violence to get justice, because that's what justice has come to mean today. We are always told that we have to make somebody pay for what they have done, otherwise there's no justice there. So justice is revenge, and that is why people uh, resort to physical violence because they are the victims of our passive violence. So it is the passive violence that we commit consciously and unconsciously every day that is the fuel that ignites the physical violence. So logically, if we want to put out the fire of physical violence, we have to cut off the fuel supply. And since the fuel supply comes from each one of us, we have to become the change that we wish to see in the world. That is how my grandfather looked at it, and he himself practiced it. And this is unfortunately something that scholars today have either ignored purposely or have not uh, looked deeply enough into his philosophy. They look at Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence as a way of conflict resolution. And it was not that alone. I have found through my experience and my understanding that it was about personal transformation. That he continuously, all his life, right up to his death, every day, consciously attempted to transform himself to become a better human being. And he told me also during the time I lived with him, that every morning when you get up, he says, the first thing that you need to do is to make a conscious attempt and say to yourself that today I am going to be a better human being than I was yesterday. And work towards becoming a better human being. And that is how we conquer the weaknesses that we have within ourselves and uh, turn those weaknesses into strengths. That is how he became a great soul. He was from an ordinary family and a regular family. He was nothing special about the way he was brought up or anything, but he made that conscious effort and he wanted everybody to know that it is something that all of us can do, which to some extent uh, to the position that he did. It's somewhat like, uh, you know, young people go to school today and every young person has the ambition of getting an A-plus grade for every subject there. But they make a concept to get it and that's what we all need to do. We may not reach that level, we may not attain the high standards that we want, but we make a conscious effort to get there and we will some extent. So he was able to instill in me the love and respect and compassion for humanity. And 
he urged all his grandchildren and his children to get involved in serving the people and not seek power. A lot of people today in, in India and elsewhere, uh, they've been asking me, why aren't you uh, the Prime Minister of India or why aren't you in politics and in, in government? But we had uh, given our pledge to grandfather during our lifetime that we will not seek power and office, we will serve the people as much as we can. And to, my, uh, to the extent of my generation, we have maintained that uh, pledge, but I don't know whether the next generations are going to do it or not. It's up to them. But at least I am very happy that my two children, uh, my daughter and my son, have learned from us and they are practicing uh, the same things that we are doing. So I want to share with you some uh, aspects of the work that we have been doing in the field of nonviolence to bring about a change uh, in, in society and particularly to look at the pain and agony that people have to suffer even to this day. We can't ignore this. We have to be aware of it and we need to do something about it. Many people have this impression that this, you know, taking care of the poor or the, uh, uh, you know, orphans and, and things like that, it's not our business, it's the government's business. We pay taxes and it's the government who needs to look after that. But I don't think that the governments are capable of doing this. Because no government, no bureaucracy can work out of compassion. And what this kind of work requires is compassionate work. And the only people who can give that compassion is us, you and me. We, we can sh show the compassion. For the government for, and for bureaucracy, it's just another job that they have to do. And you can't really take care of poor people that way. When my, I was forced to live in India, because I went there after my father died and I took his ashes and I was about 23 years old then and I took his ashes to India for immersion and I had a severe attack of appendicitis and had to undergo surgery and I fell in love with my nurse and decided to marry her. And since the, then the government told me that you can come back alone, but you're not going to bring your wife with you. And I said, that's ridiculous. How can I leave her and, and come back alone to South Africa? So the choice was very, um, uh, very limited for me. I, either I uh, stayed with my wife or I had to take care of my mom and two sisters. Um, I had to abandon somebody and I chose to abandon my mom and two sisters and it pains me to this day that I was forced to do this. But I lived in India and I'm not, I, I don't regret it. I am very happy in some sense because that opportunity gave me the uh, means to flourish and to understand my grandfather's uh, message and his uh, uh, 
philosophy better than I would have done if I was in South Africa. Because in India, my wife and I came across a lot of poverty and I'm sure all of you who have been to India have seen much of the poverty that exists in, in that country. And um, we got involved in uh, working for the poor people and the discriminated, the so-called untouchable people. And during that period, we came across um, little in babies, newborn babies, who were abandoned in the streets, just days after their birth. And they were in such miserable conditions because, you know, in the Indian tradition, it's, uh, um, it, it's not good for an unmarried uh, woman to have a baby. And so they try to hide the pregnancies by not eating enough and, and keeping the baby small so that their stomach doesn't show. And then they quietly deliver the baby and, and abandon it immediately. And so the baby is malnourished and, and then has to go through the trauma of being rejected by the mother, left in the streets. And we found 128 over a period of 10 years. And uh, these babies, we took them in and we gave them, found homes for them and uh, placed them in, in, in different uh, homes. And I have a picture here of one of them that I want to show you if I can manage this technology. I don't think so. Oh, yes. <laughs> If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. No. No, I'm not good with technology. <laughs> anyway, we gave 128 of these babies in adoption, various places, and uh, one of them went to France. And uh, uh, we generally try to maintain connection with the parents, uh, the adoptive parents, so that we can monitor the growth of the child there. But these French people, the, the French couple, uh, for some reason best known to them, 
they broke off all relations and they wouldn't reply to our letters and no communications, nothing at all. We just con totally lost contact with that one baby. We had contact with all the other 127 babies, but this one baby we lost contact with altogether. And then uh, in 2008, um, this was about 25 years after we found this baby. She was uh, actually two days old when we found her. My wife and I were walking down the, the street in Bombay and we saw this little bundle lying near a garbage bin. And, uh, you know, the baby was crying and we picked up the baby and looked around and couldn't find anybody who would claim the baby. And so we took it to the police station and the police station uh, uh, told us to take the baby to the orphanage and we got the baby registered there and uh, we realized that the mortality rate in the orphanage was tremendously high. A baby would be very lucky if they survived the first five years. Uh, most of the babies died before they, they were five years old. So we uh, got uh, involved in finding homes for these babies and put, giving them in legal adoptions. And that's how we uh, got this baby and sent her to France. And uh, then, as I said, for 25 years, we lost contact with her. And in 2008, um, I got a message from the Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence, which is one of the institutes I started uh, way back in 91, and it's now at the University of Rochester in New York. And they called me at home and they said that there's a French woman who's been frantically trying to get in touch with you. Uh, will you please call her back? She has left a telephone number. And I didn't know who this person was. It, you know, just went out of my head. And so I told them, I said, I'm not going to make an international call for some uh, person who wants to talk to me. If she wants to talk, give her my home number and ask her to call me at home. And a few days later, she called back again. And she always called at, uh, at, at a time when there was nobody in the office. And so she left another very frantic message and sobbing and saying, please call me, I want to speak with you. So then I said, well, there's something serious here, I need to call. And it turned out it was this little baby that we had given uh, in adoption. She was then 25 years old and uh, she was frantically trying to get in touch with me because her parents had refused to tell her where she came from or who she was or anything of the sort. And she was, you know, she obviously wasn't French. And uh, she, she wanted to know where she came from and, you know, all that. And for their whatever reason, they wouldn't tell her. So she was getting more and more anxious about this. And then uh, it just happened in 2008, she was going through some documents uh, in her father's file and she found one document which had my name on it and giving me the legal authority to work on behalf of the family. And 
so she realized that uh, this guy is either my biological father or he knows something about my past. And that's how she uh, searched for me on Google and found, finally found me and uh, left this message. So we talked for a long time and I told her everything that I could uh, remember of her life and uh, um, you know how we found her and, and all that and she cried on the phone for more than an hour and a half we talked then. Then she said, can I call you back tomorrow? I said, fine, call me back tomorrow. And for the next two, three days she kept calling me and asking for more questions and more information and I gave her everything I could. Then she says to me, I now know you from Google and I heard your voice, now I want to see you. And I said, well, that's not going to happen very easily. You are in Paris and I'm in New York and I'm not likely to come that way soon. So I don't think we are going to be able to do that. So she said, well, can I come to visit you? And I said, well, fine, you can come. Uh, and visit me here in New York. So she tried to find a ticket to come over and a few days later she called back and cried some more and said, I'm sorry, I can't afford to come there. It's too expensive for me. But then in the meantime I got an invitation to go to Edinburgh and speak there at the Edinburgh Fe Festival. And so I told her that I'm going to be in Edinburgh, Scotland for a whole week. So why don't you come over to Edinburgh and stay with me and we can meet and, and talk. And so that's where we made the connection. She came over and vis visited and then she said that I'm going to uh, treat you as my spiritual father. And I said, fine, if that helps you, go ahead. And so. She is now my uh, spiritual daughter. And so, the, you know, we have these 128 babies who are our grandchildren now. It was a very pathetic situation when we were in 1995-96. Uh, we got several letters from all of these uh, children because a number of them are in Sweden. And uh, they were all anxious to... Uh, meet us and talk with us and so we got all these letters and uh, that coincided with an invitation that I had to go to Austria and speak at the university there. So I told my wife that we can go to Austria and uh, do this program and then from there we can go on to Sweden and meet these children and come back. And so we did that and we told them that we can't stay with you all the time but uh, if you could all get get together and we spend a whole day together, that would be a better thing. So they got somebody's farm on rent for the day and we spent the whole day on the farm. And all of them, uh, we had a discussion there and all of them had this one uh, expectation from us. They wanted us to help them find their biological parent. And I said, you know, we found you in these circumstances. You were left on the streets and we found you there. And there was no documentation. We don't know where your parents are or who your parents are. It's impossible to find them. 
and we had to take the decision uh, for you that either we leave you in the orphanage and you die before the age of five or we send you to some uh, loving home where you can grow up and have a future. And so we took that decision. And uh, so I asked them, I said, why are you so eager to find your biological parent? And they said, well, ever since we started going to school, we heard children talk about who they look like, whose nose they have and whose eyes they have and whose hair they have and all of these little things. And he said, we can't relate to that because we obviously don't look like our biological parents. I mean our uh, adoptive parents. So we want to know whose eyes we have and whose nose we have. So I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, but we do, took this decision and if you think that we messed up your life, all I can say is please forgive us. We did it with good intentions. And for a moment there was absolute quiet in the hall. And then they all got get up and they said, no, we don't have any problems anymore. We can now tell the world that we look like our grandparents. And they pointed at us. That we have our grandparents' hair and eyes and nose and color. And so you have solved all our problems. But, you know, that, that's the kind of uh, satisfaction you get from uh, this kind of work there. It's, it was a very touching, very moving experience for us. First of all, to find all these babies in the street and then to be able to find them homes there. Uh, but then, um, you know, more recently, one day I was in Bombay. I, I take a group every year into India on a Gandhi legacy tour. And uh, this happens in uh, end of December, early January. And we go on the, uh, you know, footsteps of Gandhi and see uh, people who are inspired by Gandhi, how they do work uh, non-violently transforming society and all that. So we go to the villages as well as to the cities and see the projects there. And uh, so uh, I was in India for one of these visits about uh, six, seven years ago. And I was traveling by train coming home uh, after visiting some friends. And uh, I found somebody tugging at my trouser leg. And I looked down and it was a little kid. Um, couldn't be more than five years old. Uh, dressed in rags, dirty, and uh, looking up at me and he was holding a little tin full of, half full of candy and imploring me to buy the candy. And I was amazed. First of all, to see such a little baby, about five years old, traveling on a train all by himself. And I said, I wouldn't dare send my five-year-old kid on, uh, on a train like this alone. And uh, then seeing his condition, so my station was coming and I said, uh, come off uh, the train with me and I'd like to talk with you. So I took him down and we sat and talked and it turned out that he was the youngest of uh, three uh, children 
and the parents lived in the slums and they were so poor that each one of them had to work and bring money home. And his, every day the routine was that his mother would send him, the, the smallest child, out with this tin full of candy. And the instructions were that he had to sell all the candy and bring the money home and then he would get something to eat. And if he didn't bring the money home, he'd got nothing to eat. That was it, simple and straightforward. And I thought to myself, it was after five o'clock in the evening and I'm sitting there and he still has this half a tin of candy. So when is this little child going to be able to eat? And, you know, it broke my heart to know that such a little child had no childhood and had to work to, to eat a meal a day. And I said, today I might help the child by buying the candy and uh, giving him the money, but what's going to happen tomorrow and the day after and the day after that? Who's going to take care of this baby? And so I decided that we need to do something more long-term and concrete to uh, rescue these children and, and give them the ability to um, break out of the cycle of poverty. And so with some friends, uh, we collaborated and, uh, and we have started a school where we have 150 uh, children. I have a couple of photographs that I wanted to show you, but uh, this technology beats me, and so I don't think it's going to work there. But, uh, they are absolutely downright poor. I just cannot describe, there are no words to describe the poverty they come out of and the kind of lifestyle they lead and the misery that they suffer every day. And we have these uh, about 153 children. Uh, we don't have our own premises yet, so we have rented a place where we have uh, 53 children in residence and the other 100 children we work with them in the slums uh, wherever their parents are living. So we send volunteers out there and they have classes running under the tree to teach them how to read and write and, uh, and then focus more on vocational training so that uh, they have some, something that they can do to produce and, and earn a livelihood there. So this program is going on and uh, we are raising money and I am very grateful to uh, Dolores and her group here. They've started the fundraiser for us. Uh, there are raffle tickets available and I hope all of you will uh, support that. We need all the money that we can get to build this uh, campus and, and have more children. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. 
They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Save them and, and give them a future and give them an opportunity to get out of that cycle of poverty and destitution. So um, it, it's an ongoing, beautiful program. Uh, we, when I take the Gandhi Legacy Tour every year, we go to this school also and we see the children, we see the conditions they come out of and, uh, and uh, you know, the transformation that has taken place in them. It's amazing. Every year I go there and I see these children and the, the change that has taken place in them. You know, it's amazing. It's just... Uh, Totally, I mean, not just the physical change, but in uh, in their entire attitude and their behavior and their relationships and everything has changed. And uh, they become much more uh, human in that sense. Because they, when they grow up in poverty, they are totally dehumanized, not only by society, but also by the circumstances that they have to live in. They, they grow up with the idea that we have to grab whatever we can get and wherever we can get it from. Uh, don't worry about anybody else, just grab it. So they grow up in that kind of mental attitude. So these are things that we have been doing and working with and, and I think that's what my grandfather wanted us to do, to uh, change society one person at a time. And I'm very happy to be able to do that and to um, share all of this. I, I want to, in the final stage of my talk, I want to give you a, a couple of more lessons, if I may. Yeah, I do have. A, do I have the time? <laughs> okay. Um, there's one very interesting story that I was narrating to uh, somebody outside just now. Uh, I think it was Stephanie that I was talking with. And, uh, you know, I found uh, one of the things that my grandfather taught me when I came to live with him at the age of 12 uh, was uh, about understanding my anger and being able to channel that anger into positive action. And I was very angry as a young boy because I grew up in South Africa and I suffered a lot of prejudices. I was beaten up by whites because they thought I was too black and by blacks because they thought I was too white. And I was furious and I wanted eye for an eye justice and I started going to the gymnasium and, and doing exercises and pumping iron so that I could be strong and be able to fight back again. 
And that is when my parents decided it was time to go to India and give me the opportunity. And grandfather, the first lesson that he taught me was about understanding that anger and being able to channel that energy into positive action. He said anger is like electricity. It's just as powerful and just as useful, but only if we use it intelligently. But it can be just as deadly and destructive if we abuse it. So just as we channel electricity and bring it into our lives and use it for the good of humanity, we must learn to channel anger in the same way so that we can use that energy for the good of humanity rather than abuse the energy and cause death and destruction. He suggested that I write an anger journal. He said, every time you become angry about something, don't act on it, don't say anything or do anything that you're going to regret. But go and write it down in your journal. But write the journal with the intention of finding a solution to the problem and then commit yourself to finding a solution. Now that is very important. Because today a lot of people tell me they have been writing an anger journal for a long time but it hasn't really helped them because every time they go back and read the journal they are just reminded of the incident and they get angry all over again. Because they pour their anger out into the journal and that doesn't help very much. You have to write the journal with the intention of finding a solution and then commit yourself to finding a solution. I did this for many years and I must say it helped me considerably in learning about how to use my anger intelligently rather than abusing it and causing uh, grief. I realized my grandfather learned this at a very early age himself and the person who taught him this was grandmother, his wife. And this happened at the age of 16, when they started living together. They were married at 13, but they started living together at 16. And at that age, grandfather said that he didn't know who the boss was going to be in that relationship, who was going to lay down the rules and enforce them. And he started going to the library and reading books on the subject. And obviously all these books were written by male chauvinists because they all talked about how the husband should lay down the rules and enforce them strictly. So after reading this, he came home one evening and he told grandmother, said, from tomorrow you're not going to stir out of the house without my permission. That is the law and you're going to obey it and I want no arguments about it. And grandmother didn't say anything at all. She didn't retort, she didn't say anything, reply to him, she just turned around and went to sleep. Got up the next day and she continued to do what she always did. Continued to go out and visit and never bothered to get grandfather's permission. And a few days later when grandfather was seeing him, he confronted her again and he says, how dare you disobey me? Didn't I tell you that you are not to go out without my permission? And at that point, very quietly, without raising her voice or making an issue of it, very quietly she tells grandfather that I was brought up to believe that we must always obey the elders in the house. And 
believe the how your parents now if you're trying to tell me that i should not obey your mother but obey you instead let me know so that i can go and tell your mother i'm not going to obey you anymore and of course grandfather couldn't tell her to do that and so the whole matter was settled without anybody losing their temper or breaking up a relationship i'd like you to ask yourself if somebody were to tell you something like that what would your reaction be i know my reaction initially would have been to flare up and say who do you think you are to tell me such things and that could just escalate and grow and it could end up in a very bitter fight but the way grandmother handled it so peacefully and quietly <laughs> that uh, it made a tremendous difference in uh, in him and he realized then and he says uh, in his autobiography that that was the most profound lesson in non-violent conflict resolution that he learned from his wife and from that point onwards learning about anger and understanding that anger became the cornerstone of his philosophy of non-violence he expected everybody to learn anger management and control of anger because today our experts tell us that more than 80% of the violence that we experience in our lives or in the lives of our nations is generated by anger we just get angry and we flare up and we say things and we do things that sometimes changes the course of our lives completely and yet we don't have to do that and the unfortunate thing is that we are so ashamed of this very powerful emotion that we don't want to speak about it we don't want to teach it we don't want to talk about it we just suppress it as much as possible and we allow each individual to find their own ways of dealing with anger and the result is that we all end up abusing it so it's very important for us to learn about anger and how to deal with it intelligently and constructively not be ashamed of it. what we need to be ashamed of is the way we abuse the anger not the emotion itself because the emotion itself is the fuel that makes us do things that we need to do if we didn't have anger we wouldn't be doing many things that we uh, do in uh, in our lives every day so the thing is that we should not abuse it but use it intelligently so finally now i want to share one story with you and it's a story that my grandfather used to be very fond of telling us of an ancient indian king who once became very curious about the meaning of peace and he invited all the intellectuals in his kingdom to come and explain the meaning of peace and everybody came there and did their best but nobody could satisfy the king and one day there was a intellectual who came from another town to pay homage and the king asked him the meaning of peace and he said the only person who can give you a satisfactory answer is an old sage who lives outside your kingdom but he is so old that he cannot you you will have to go to him and ask him this question when the sage 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And asked him the meaning of peace. And the sage quietly went to the back of the house came back with a grain of wheat and placed that grain of wheat on the king's palm your answer and of course the king didn't know what a grain of wheat had to do with peace and he didn't want to show his ignorance so he quietly clutched that grain of wheat and went back to the palace and he found a little gold box and he placed that grain of wheat in the box and every morning he would open the box to look for an answer and he couldn't find any answers so a few days later when this intellectual came back on a return visit the king asked him to explain he said you sent me to this sage and he gave me this grain of wheat and i don't know what this grain of wheat has to do with peace so please explain and that's when this intellectual said it's very simple he said as long as you keep this grain of wheat in this box nothing is going to happen it will eventually rot and perish and that will be the end of the story but if you had planted this grain of wheat outside in the soil allowed it to interact with all the elements it would sprout and grow and very soon you could have a whole field of wheat and that is the meaning of peace that if somebody has found peace and if they keep it locked up in their hearts for their own personal gains it will perish with them but if they let it interact with all the elements it would sprout and grow and spread and one day we can have uh, a whole world full of peacemakers so i have come here this evening to give you the grain of wheat that i got from my grandparents and i hope that you won't let it rot and perish but let it interact so that all of us together could transform this world and make it a better place for future generations thank you thank you thank you First first of all I I want you to tell me what you think about the anger that's happening in Syria today. And uh, uh another side question I have is do you do you know Sai Baba? And uh I think it would be better if you ask me one question. Okay, let's start with Syria. I reached an age when I have senior moments and I can't remember. Okay, I, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> so Let me answer your Syrian question first. It's very unfortunate what's happening there, but this is a typical example of how we ignore situations uh, until we can't ignore them anymore, and then they explode in our face. And at that moment, we don't know what to do with it, and so it leads to violence. There. 
Uh, and when I say we, I don't necessarily mean we here in the United States, but the, the people in Syria, people in that region um, had ignored it and let it be and let it fester until uh, it blew up and caused a revolution. Uh, you know, the thing about nonviolence is becoming conscious of the situations within your communities, within your societies. Uh, that are potential for conflicts and trying to find solutions to them before they explode into major situations. But uh, everywhere we have become so materialistic and so selfish and self-centered that we just think about ourselves and we don't care what happens in, uh, in society. And as long as we are comfortable and fine, you know, everything else can take care of itself. And then we find that some issue has cropped up and blown up and, and got involved in it without knowing it. So this is the tragedy that we see everywhere, you know, where violence breaks out. It's the fact is that we as huma human beings have continuously ignored the, uh, the situations and led to this kind of conflict. I, I have uh, other questions, but I'm going to save myself so you can talk to other people. But let me say one thing finally. Uh, I believe your grandfather spoke of uh, perhaps forgiveness. And uh, perhaps you can uh, forgive yourself for leaving your mother and sisters. Uh, that would be in line with his teachings. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, Arun, a lot of people don't realize Dr. Gandhi is an American citizen. Yeah. And he could have gone anywhere, and you did consider going to many different places to finally live. Mm -hmm. Tell them why you chose America, and especially the South part when you were in Memphis. Tell them that story. Well, the south part of it came about, you know, I had no conscious attempt uh, to come to the U.S. and stay here. Um, we were doing this work in India, my wife and I, and uh, one day we had a visitor from Hong Kong, and he turned out to be a United Methodist priest who was stationed in Hong Kong. And he came and met us, and he saw the work that we were doing, and he was so impressed by it that he made it his mission uh, to uh, tell all the Americans who came to Hong Kong that they have to come to India and meet me and see the work that was being done. So we had a steady stream of American visitors. And one day, lady come, traveling alone, she was uh, from Vicksburg, Mississippi, and um, we took, showed her the work and then my wife and I took her out to dinner that evening and we just chatted over dinner. I was very interested in the uh, race prejudice in, in this country because I had experience, as I told you, color prejudice in South Africa. And I was very closely involved in the caste prejudice in India. And I had read about the race prejudice in, uh, in the United States. Uh, and so I was questioning her and asking her what was the situation in Mississippi now and 
uh, how is the race situation and so on and we were just chatting and uh, during that discussion suddenly this idea just popped into my head and I said it would be a, a fascinating study to, to study the, these three types of prejudices. In South Africa it was purely color-based. It had nothing to do with race. It was just purely white and black. If you were not white, you were black. It didn't matter where you came from or what shade of black you were, you were just treated black. In India, we had no physical differences. You put two of us together, you won't know which is a high caste or which is a low caste person. And yet we found ways of determining this and we oppressed the people, so-called low caste people. And then here I had read about the race prejudice, which was against the African-American people here. So this discussion went on and she asked me, would you like to do this, write this book? And I said, yes, I would, but I don't have the money to come to the U.S. and, and do this study. And we left it at that. And then uh, about six months later, I get a letter from the University of Mississippi offering me a fellowship for one year to come and uh, do this study. So I accepted that fellowship and uh, came, came here to the United States only to be told by the university that my fellowship was cancelled because President Reagan had cut the education budget. And so I had to go back empty-handed and uh, resume my work in India. But then uh, three years later, uh, the fellowship was renewed and I got the opportunity to come back uh, and be at the University of Mississippi and do this study. But the one mistake that the university made was to publicize the fact that I was there on the campus. And uh, all these national magazines and newspapers did uh, big features on my presence and everybody in the country came to know that Gandhi's grandson was here and so I started getting invitations to go out and speak and that study was put on the back burner and it's still there on the back burner. <laughs> I just got so involved in speaking that I, I went out and, uh, and did the speaking. But then after I realized that there was this tremendous interest in people in Gandhi and his philosophy and so my wife and I uh, decided that we have now reached the second phase of our life when we can now stop being activists and start being more uh, into teaching and, and training people. And so we decided to stay here. And there was another reason that uh, we also thought that uh, the United States has already demonstrated to the world that it is a superpower in terms of its military strength. Now it needs to show the world that it can also be a superpower in terms of its moral strength. And that uh, the United States is willing. <laughs> and the United States is willing to do what is good for the world and not just what is good for the United States. Uh, Gandhi set up the foundation 
the Mahatma Gandhis in a way that no one in his family could ever make any profit on the Gandhi name. Yes. So Gandhi cannot earn any money associated with his grandfather. Yes. So everything he does has to be uh, what non-profit or so to speak. Yeah, Others can make getting... money off of your grandfather, but you can't. No, we can't. No member of the family can make any money out of it. We don't hold copyrights to anything. In fact, if I write a book and if I want to quote my grandfather, I have to get the permission of that foundation uh, and pay them whatever royalty they want for it. So, we have no say in anything uh, or any use of the name or uh, erecting of statues or anything at all. He was very astute uh, and he realized that, uh, you know, this could be uh, something that the family could exploit and tear up, you know. We have seen this happen uh, even today. The King family is all torn up because of the conflict over copyrights and who, who is going to own the copyrights and all that. And he, he realized this, so during his lifetime he created a public trust and invested all the copyrights and the rights to all his writings and everything in that public trust. And he made sure that no member of the family was ever going to be on that trust. So even the royalties I pay him have to go toward living expenses. Mm -hmm. So here's a man that has devoted his whole life for something he believes in. How many of those are out there? I have a question. Um, just, I'm wondering the caste system in India, um, how strong it is, because it seems that if you and your wife are um, attempting, you know, the daunting task of helping these little children um, that might be of the untouchable class, you know, that kind of correlates to the Well, you task. know, it's a very uh, sad situation. My grandfather wanted the caste system to be abolished and he, um, you know, always said that uh, this is uh, unjust and no religion uh, should have this kind of uh, unjust uh, treatment of its people and the whole thing needs to be abolished. And he saw, you know, he named the low caste people uh, as children of God. He gave the name Harijan, which uh, translates into children of God. And he said that they have earned the right to be called the children of God because of all the suffering that they went through in all these uh, centuries. But the rest of the Hindu society would earn the right to be called children of God when they atone for the suffering that they caused to these people. So he saw at some stage the entire Hindu society being called Harijans instead of being defined by the castes that uh, they were uh, born into. But the tragedy was that when India became independent in 1947, 98.8% um, of the politicians and the bureaucrats who inherited independence from the British government belonged to the first two castes. And they were not going to, uh, uh, you know, do anything to jeopardize their uh, status in, in society. 
So what they did was instead of abolishing the caste system, they made discrimination on the basis of caste or gender or color or race illegal. And what happened was that this put the onus of proving discrimination on the victim. And in this case, the victim are so ignorant and so poor that they can't complain and they just quietly suffer the injustice. So today, if you go and ask the uh, bureaucrats in the government of India, they will very happily tell you that we don't have any discrimination in the country because nobody has ever filed a, a case. But the fact is that nobody has filed a case because they just don't have the means to file a case. But uh, unfortunately, the uh, prejudices still remain and still ingrain. And I see, uh, and, and this is a very uh, strange phenomenon, because at one stage I thought that people coming out from India and living in a Western society uh, would change their attitudes and become more broad-minded and, and accepting uh, and inclusive. But I find that these people living here in the Western world are more caste conscious than the people back home. The people back home have changed and transformed and are getting to the position of being a little more inclusive than the people here. And these people here have all the money. And they send all that money to the right-wing um, Brahmin uh, high caste organization to maintain the system that they feel is being threatened. So <laughs> it's counterproductive. Uh, you know, people living here, enlightened and westernized and all that, are looking to create a situation that we want to change in India. You became uh, so dedicated because that your grandfather. Uh, I would like. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You know that about the everyday's life, but nobody else, just you know, as a grandson, how it looked like it's a meal with your grandfather. How it looked like it's a everyday. How was it? Every yeah. When, when you were in, in his house, when you had uh, lunch together, that, uh, uh, what are you talking about? Uh, I know that he was in a, a special diet. So uh, is he blessed the food? Because I, India is very poor, so that was really blessed uh, family who, had, who has mm -hmm. a food over there. How looked like that? Well, his everyday life was very different because he, he didn't believe in nuclear families. He believed in all humanity being his family and so he had created the ashram where uh, hundreds of people came and lived and, and everybody was treated as part of the family. 
So everybody uh, cooked together, worked together, did everything together there. We ate together and all that. For a while, grandfather used to be part of the entire ashram and we would sit and eat everybody else uh, there. And uh, his food was always very simple. And uh, one of the things that he said that we must eat not for uh, uh, the taste of it, but for survival. And so whatever we can produce, we can eat simple food and, you know, just get the nourishment that we need to survive and not fill ourselves with uh, food and, and become sick, sick there, overeating and all that. So he was very simple meals and um, uh, yeah, he ate very little uh, and he, he didn't have breakfast. He would uh, have an early lunch at about 10, 10.30 and then in the afternoon at about four, he would have his uh, evening meal. And by nine o'clock, he was in bed because he would get up at uh, 2.30, 3 in the morning and work when everybody else was sleeping. So he, he had a very uh, structured life and he ev expected everybody who lived with him to have the same kind of life. He said, we don't have the luxury of killing time, that we must be able to account for every minute of the day and not say that I didn't have anything to do, so I was just whiling away time. And uh, so even when I was living with him, I had a timetable for every day from the time I got up at five in the morning uh, till the time I went to bed at nine o'clock in the night. I had everything, you know, hour to hour, everything that I had to do, which included playtime, but uh, it was all structured. Did he play it with you? Yes, he played. He spent an hour a day with me. He would uh, be just a grandfather. He would uh, look at uh, my lessons if I needed any help with lessons, or he would tell me stories, but... Uh, you know, you might have seen in his photographs that he was always spinning cotton. He was a multitasker. So when we would talk, he said, uh, while we are talking, our hands can work. And so we were spinning. So one day I challenged him and I said, let us see who can spin the most and the thinnest yarn. And we used to have this competition every day after that. And finally, he wrote a letter to my parents acknowledging that I used to beat him always in spinning. Did he had its a favorite food? No, nothing. He, food was, uh, yeah, not, he, he never ate for taste, so there was no... F when he was young, he was very, uh, you know, very fond of food. And he loved sweets. And uh, there's an incident uh, in South Africa when he was a very young man still and had not become a well-known politician. Um, there's a sweet uh, pancake that uh, we Indians make. Uh, and uh, he loved that pancake. And uh, so one day grandmother decided to make that for lunch. 
and he came home and he saw her making these pancakes and he says, is that all you're going to make? So she said, yeah, how much more do you need? That's enough for all the family. He says, no, I can eat all that alone. What do you mean the whole family? So grandmother said, what nonsense are you talking? You can't eat all that alone. So he said, okay, you want a challenge? Come on, you make the pancakes and I'll eat them. And he started eating and he wiped out the whole thing. And the grandmother had to make more for the family there. So he was, during his young days, very fond of food. But then when he realized his mission in life, uh, food became uh, absolutely secondary in his life. Uh, he, he just ate because he had to survive and get strength. But it didn't matter what it tasted like. He, he always experimented. Sometimes he would have a saltless diet and sometimes he would eat just nuts and raisins. And uh, So he kept experimenting and doing all that kind of thing. But, you know, once I was asked by a, a woman in Australia, she wrote to me and she said, uh, I want to celebrate Gandhi's birthday by uh, holding a banquet uh, with his favorite dishes. So please send me recipes of his favorite dishes. There. And I said, well, if you tasted what he ate, you wouldn't even think of uh, touching that food <laughs> anymore. So there is no favorite dishes that I can recommend for you. Um, did you have any inter interface with Martin Luther King when he was in India? Unfortunately not. Uh, I was a very young uh, journalist at the time and I didn't think he would even recognize me. So I, yeah, I, I did go and uh, listen to a couple of his meetings, but I was also involved with one of the museums there in, in Bombay and, and there's a very interesting story about that. Uh, you know, he was the guest of the government of India. He was invited by the government of India in 1959 to come there and see and meet with uh, people who had lived with Gandhi and worked with him and learn more about the philosophy of nonviolence. So he and his family and many other leaders of the African-American community had come on that visit. And being guests of the government of India, they were treated well and they were, you know, they had VIP status everywhere and staying in beautiful hotels and all that. When they came to the city of Bombay, they were all put up in the best hotel in the city, the Taj Mahal. And, you know, the room rates there today are, uh, they start at $800 a night. Uh, it's that kind of uh, hotel. So they were staying there and they, they checked in and they left their bags and all that and then they were taken out into the town to see the sights and all that. And they came to this museum, uh, which was basically a house that was donated to my grandfather. Uh, to live in whenever he came to Bombay. So from 1915 to 1931 or 32, uh, whenever he came to Bombay, he stayed in that house. 
Today that house has been converted into a museum and a library and, uh, and you know, Gandhi Center. So they were brought to this place to uh, see the place. And they had this room where my grandfather used to stay upstairs on the second floor, uh, which, was, which is uh, furnished the way he had it, which was no furniture at all. In one corner there's a mattress uh, and, uh, and on that he had a little desk that he could sit and write on and his spinning wheel and, and that's all. And then they had this plain mats for people to sit and visit with him. So it's a bare room. But what they've done now is they've, you know, put glass walls all around so people can look into the room, but nobody is allowed to go inside. In, in there. So when Dr. King came there, he uh, expressed the wish to go and sit inside and meditate for a little while. And he asked the director, and the director, because he was a VIP, she made a special concession and opened the door for him, and he went in and sat there and meditated, and he dismissed the rest of the group. He said, you go and do whatever you have to do and I'll catch up with you when I'm done here. And then he sat there and soon it was time for the museum to close and everybody was waiting for him to come out. And then finally the director went and asked him, so when are you going to come out? We need to close and go home. And he said, I'm not coming out. He said, I'm going to stay here the whole night. And she was amazed. She said, how can you stay here? This is a museum. We don't have place for you or, you know, anything. And besides, you are supposed to be staying at the Taj Mahal Hotel. Why would you stay here in the museum? And he said, well, if Gandhi could sleep here on the floor, I can sleep on the floor. And if he could stay here, I'm staying here. So let's not argue about it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. You can go and come back tomorrow and I'll be here. So he stayed the whole night and he got out of that room only at 10 o'clock the next morning. And that's when he announced that now I feel st spiritually strong enough to go and lead my people in the struggle uh, for equal rights. You said uh, when your grandfather discovered what his mission in life was, that uh, that changed everything. What, what did he see as his mission in life? Well, it all turns around that one incident uh, when he was going by train um, to, to Pretoria to um, um, attend the court there. And at that time, had this notion that because he was a lawyer he had to travel by first class and uh, so he sent in a mail order request for a first class and it was issued to him and so he got that day he gets into the first class compartment and, and sits there and there was nobody else so he nobody challenged him until the train reached the next station and a white man came on board and saw them. He said, how dare you sit here in the first class, get out of here and go to your, uh, your Indian carriage. And grandfather was 
puzzled and he said, I have a first class ticket, here it is and I am going to be traveling by first class. So this man was so annoyed, he went and got the railway officials and the police and they told grandfather to get out or they, he would be thrown out. And because he refused to go out on his own, they literally picked him up and threw him off the train, bag and baggage. And that incident was so humiliating for him that he decided that, you know, it's wrong for people to accept injustice and live with it. We have to do something to uh, change this. And many thoughts came through his mind through the night, but he realized that fighting a violent war or violent uh, attack on the government is not going to help anybody and that uh, he had to find a non-violent way of uh, doing this. So that's where the transformation started and he became a non-violent activist. Was he influenced by Thoreau's uh, civil dis disobedience? Not at that point. At that point he said that he had not read Thoreau yet. He read Thoreau later when he was in prison uh, for one of these uh, violent actions. And in prison, um, I think it was uh, Kallenbeck, his friend, a white man, white Jewish man, uh, who became a very close friend of my grandfather's. He gave him this book to read in the prison and that's when he read the book. He, uh, happy, he says, to know that an eminent philosopher in the United States uh, thought in the same way as he was do thinking in South Africa. And was he a friend of uh, Yogananda? Yeah, he was a friend of his. Uh, they met, I think, for the first time in 1935-36 and um, Yogananda spoke to him about uh, Kriya Yoga and, and so on. And, I was just wondering if there are people um, associated with you or otherwise in India still helping the babies, if that's still a prevalent issue that, are, that were being discarded and helping to adopt them out? No, unfortunately not. Um, uh, we couldn't find anybody to uh, take over that responsibility. But I still, whenever I go to India, I still see in the newspapers reports of a baby found here or there, and it's very tragic. Can you tell us where you chose to raise your children and what they are doing now? My two children, I have a daughter and a son. My daughter lives in, the, in Rochester. Her husband used to be in Xerox in Rochester, and uh, he took early retirement recently, and. Um, now he is a consultant, so they are free. They have two boys and both of them are well placed. One is a doctor who passed out of Harvard Medical School and is practicing in Boston. And the other son graduated from USC and he was immediately taken by an investment banking company and he's the, already become a senior vice president at the age of 28. You must be uh, very proud. So, and my son lives in India. 
and he's doing the same work that I am doing here and uh, he's helping with this uh, school that we are, we are creating there and eventually hope to build a campus and raise money for it. Uh, and, you know, talking of raising money, I rem uh, I'm reminded of uh, in a few years ago, I think it was in London. And I it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I spoke at a middle school there, and I told them about these children and how we them and, and give them life. And all these children were very moved by it and after the talk they came to me and they said, Mr. Gandhi, what can we do to help you? And I said, well, uh, you know, I said, the simple things can be done. I said, all of you get pocket money every day from your parents to do something, buy something, and you end up buying candy or some drink or something that you don't really need, but because you have the money, you buy it. So I said, suppose if you decide today that all of you are going to sacrifice half of that pocket money for some poor child somewhere and help that child and just use half of it, uh, can you do it? And they all said yes, and there are about 300 kids in the middle school and they all said yes and I was amazed four months later they sent me a check for seven thousand dollars that they raised from saving their pocket money then they had bake sales and, and all kinds of things and they collected all that money and sent it to me so you know miracles can happen you, you said that everything in, in the ashram was very structured. I wondered what they did, what he wanted the, what Gandhi wanted them to do during the day, the, the people, the hundred people that came there to stay. Well, his ashrams were basically training in a non-violent lifestyle and a non-violent struggle. Uh, he was training them how, um, you know, when the, he launched a campaign, uh, what they needed to do and how how a non-violent struggle takes place and also simplifying life you know we our life becomes very complicated because we want so much of material things and we want to buy more and more uh, things there and so it becomes very complicated and he said we've got to simplify our life and just do with basic needs there. And uh, so life on the, in the ashram was very simple uh, and everybody had to work by hand. There was no such thing as this is man's work and this is women's work. If cooking had to be done, men and women cooked together. If cleaning had to be done, washing had to be done, everything was done together. And uh, you know, so we had all these duties to perform throughout the day along with learning about nonviolence and uh, 
how to be non-violent activists. And did Gandhi know Sai Baba? Did, uh, as he taught, Sai Baba teaches non-violence as, as well, and I wondered if they had a relationship. Well, uh, I, I don't know which Sai Baba you're talking about, the modern uh, one or the Sai. ancient one? Sathya Sai or Shirdi Sai? I think he had some relationship with the ancient Sai Baba, but not with the modern one. The modern one um, was not spiritually awakened yet until my grandfather died. He was assassinated in 1948. When, when I went to uh, India and got off the train, I was surrounded by children begging for money. Mm. And uh, even a lady crawling on a little cart because she had no legs mm. and another woman who said my baby needs food would you help me mm. and they were swarming around and uh, someone told me these beggars paid their money that they would collect to the leader mm. so it was like a mafia in a way it was a group organized group yeah and this yeah. is this is the information that i had Yes, that's true. In the big cities, uh, there's mafia gangs that have cropped up and they um, have cornered all these beggars and uh, poor people and make them go out and beg and bring the money back to the gang and they're basically just given some simple food to eat for the day but no money. So it's a tremendous exploitation. So how can we, how can we help you uh, what would be a way to do it? Well, uh, by helping the school that we are creating and, and these constructive ways where we are rescuing these people from poverty and giving them the means to make something out of their life. Uh, I think that's the only uh, constructive way to do it. Is there an, an address that we would use or a Yes, um, you can go to the website gandhiforchildren.org um, and Gandhi is spelled G-A-N-D-H-I forchildren.org and also the other website is gandhilegacytour.org if anybody is interested in knowing more about the tour. I know it's a special uh, uh, moment was when uh, your grandfather uh, uh, killer uh, was uh, uh, your grandfather told uh, he, his murder that forgive, forgive him. Can you tell this story for us? Yes, um, when he was assassinated he was point blank and the person was about three, four feet away from him and there was all these crowd all around there and he just came and shot him and at that moment uh, grandfather's you know just folded his hands and uh, said hey Ram and collapsed onto the floor and so that signifies that he uh, you know uh, forgave the the assassin before he died but before that, he was warned that he was in danger of being assassinated oh, yes. and he didn't want any protection. Right. He was uh, 
a victim of uh, assassination attempts right from 1935 onwards. The same group of people, and all of these people were higher class Brahmins um, who decided to assassinate him from 1935, uh, and on the eighth occasion in 1948, they succeeded. And I have this uh, feeling that the government of India and the bureaucracy of India at the time uh, decided that a martyred Gandhi was better than having a living Gandhi. Uh, because a living Gandhi would make life miserable for the politicians and the bureaucracy and insist on simple life and, and so on, and they didn't want that. So they thought that if there's a, there is an at assassination attempt, let it go through and let him be assassinated and then we can put him on a pedestal and, and worship him. And that's what's basically happening today. Um, now, I don't have any concrete evidence of this, but the very fact that the same people who threw a bomb on, his, uh, on him at the prayer meeting on 20th of January, 1948, were able to go free from there, go around India and come back to the place ten days later and complete their mission. Now, I refuse to believe that the police and the authorities were so uh, stupid and senseless that even when that one person who threw the bomb was arrested and he gave the names and addresses of all the people who were involved in the thing, and yet the police were not able to trace them and catch them. If they could come back to the same spot, the same spot where they threw the bomb, come back there and assassinate him ten days later. So, all these makes one believe that there was some, something underhand going on there, and that the government and the bureaucracy were really happy that he was assassinated. But, but your grandfather said he was not going to live in fear. That's why he didn't want to have any protection. Yeah, he refused to have protection because he said, if I am to die, nobody can protect me, and if I am not going to die, nobody can save me. Uh, Arun, where were you when it happened? Were you in India? No, I had just gone back. You know, we left for South Africa in November of 1947. And he was assassinated two months later, 48, January 48. So you were at the ashram? Yeah, I was at the ashram in, in South Africa. As you know, there's increasing hostility and anger in this country. And um, many people are saying there's a 99% and a 1% and the polarities are growing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what your advice is about our situation today, here? Yes, I think it's very true that there is a small minority of people who are cornering a lot of the money and, and the rest of us are living um, by our shoestrings. But um, I don't think a violent revolution will succeed or will help anybody. Uh, I, and I was uh, a little disappointed with the Occupy Wall Street movement because uh, although it was nonviolent and all that, 
they made very clear what they are against, but they didn't tell us what they are for. And I think any revolution, yeah, we need to know what we are standing for or what, what are we fighting for. Uh, you know, it's not enough to say that we are against this and we want to destroy it. Uh, we need to know what we want to replace it with. And if we don't have that replacement, then uh, that revolution will not succeed. Just as the 1960s, uh, the hippie movement tried to destroy the existing cultural structure and, the, uh, and uh, for a while they, they were successful in destroying it, but then since they had nothing to replace it with, it didn't last very long. So a movement has to have a proper, um, you know, even if it is a non-violent struggle. And this is the point I keep making everywhere. I think people have not understood the philosophy well. They just think that we can just get up and go out into the streets and um, protest non-violently. That's not enough. We need to have a proper training, we need to have a proper plan. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? What are we going to replace this with? Everything has to be worked out before we launch something. And nobody ever does that. They just think that it's, you know, walk out into the street and, and protest and, and that doesn't work very well. I'm amazed now when you see how our presidential elections and even our Senate and Congress elections are becoming so much, so expensive. I mean, unless a person has uh, the ability to raise $500 million, you can't even think of standing for presidential. So it's just a small group of people who are going to be able to get elected to uh, these positions, and why should it be that way? If a democracy is a democracy, then anybody should be able to aspire to stand for election. And why it should cost so much money, and why it should go on for uh, a whole year before election, I don't understand. It's just getting out of hand. And Gandhi's foundation is called the Worldwide Children's Education? No, it's called the Gandhi Worldwide Education Institute. You're starting in India, but you are going to be spreading all around the world. Yeah, the uh, charter says that we are going to work all over the world. But of course, everything depends on how much money we are able to collect. And, uh, it's an ambitious and project, but if anybody can do it, I think you can. I'm trying. Let's see. We have raised about half a million dollars, and we're going to start with the construction of the present campus. And if this succeeds, then we hope to uh, expand into Africa and other poor developing countries there too. But it all depends. You know, now I'm 78, going on 79, and... I don't know how long I can keep up this uh, tempo. And I'll continue as long as I can. Thank you very much.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.